Welcome to Nugent News. I have not been on the air in a while because I've been busy and suffering from various and sundry maladies. Today I have a kind of a bad toothache, so that's that's today's the excuse du jour. But anyway, um, I will share with you today a little dialogue I had on Facebook with one of my bet noirs, if you will, who said, the stage is being set for deadly forces in proximity to each other, and I presume he's referring to Ukraine. How long before an accident will happen, he asks. So I responded by saying, we're playing a very dangerous game in our approach to Russia's war in Ukraine. My heart is with Zelensky, which it is, and I've been heartened by the West's support, albeit limited. Uh, the Ukraine, for the Ukraine, I should have said, in opposition to the loathsome Putin. However, my head wonders if we have inadvertently exacerbated the carnage. The question is whether Ukraine would have been more likely to acquiesce to Russia had the U.S. not elevated the issue. And I mean by that, Joe going on uh, with press conferences every day, like the play-by-play man. Now, that did succeed in rallying the West, I believe, and also the domestic public opinion. But you, re- you elevate the stakes at that point. I go on to say, at this, point in, at this point, history will determine whether our position was wise or foolish. If Ukraine emerges independent and Russia humbled and ideally Putin ousted, Joe Biden will deserve kudos. If Ukraine is crushed in the end, the policy must be considered a failure. And my uh, interlocutor says, so your approach would have been to lay down and surrender, which, of course, is a typical response from this guy. So I said, at some length. <clears throat> so this one's all about Ukraine, folks. So if you're not interested, tune out. My view is that Biden could easily have taken the dovish approach. I fully expected that after Afghanistan, and I suspect Putin read that signal, too. He could have said, Biden... Look, they're not in NATO, and we have important problems at home. Democrats would have rallied behind him, no matter what he said, probably, but particularly the social wing of the party. You haven't seen AOC with any Ukrainian flags, as far as I know. The alternative would have been to aggressively honor the 1994 Budapest Agreement. And that, by the way, is uh, an agreement we made to talk the Ukrainians into getting rid of their nuclear weapons when uh, Yeltsin broke up the Soviet Union into the Commonwealth of Independent States. Russia and, or the CIS and the United States both guaranteed their safety if they did that, and they foolishly believed us. But if we had decided to enforce that and said, look, if, if the tread of one tank crosses into the Ukraine from Russia, we will view it as a violation of the security guarantee of both Russia and the U.S. gave Ukraine in return for denuclearization. If Putin crossed that line, I say, I would have committed the full force of U.S. air and cyber power to destroy his invasion force, which is actually what I felt like doing at the time. And it's probably just as well I just had this podcast instead of the presidency. Admittedly, this is an extraordinary risky strategy that risks nuclear confrontation. I don't think he would have or will now go to that extreme because mutually assured destruction remains the ultimate deterrent. 
in the event Biden took a middle road, elevating the issue and responding with economic sanctions, which, while draconian, are too limited and unlikely to, in and of themselves, cause Putin to retreat. Arms have been provided, but so far have been indecisive, and by stopping the Russians' advance uh, with their columns of armor in their initial special forces invasion, they led Russia to level entire cities with artillery at great cost and blood and, and treasure. I add, I hope Biden's strategy works, but if it doesn't, the dovish approach may have been more humane. Again, from the point of view of limiting the number of Ukrainians who actually get killed in a losing cause. That depends on whether Zelensky could have been persuaded to take the dovish approach, which I doubt. But if we had made a clear look, we hate this, but there's nothing we can do about it, and you're on your own, and we're not going to provide weapons, you know, we're just going to have to sit back because you're not in NATO, probably fewer Ukrainians. There'd be more Ukrainians left than there are now. I wouldn't have been supportive of that strategy necessarily, but if you don't go to the other uh, end of the spectrum and say, look, we're not going to let these guys kill you. We're going to kill them before they kill you. Then, I don't know. I think that's a tough... The middle road is tough. From what I understand, Ukrainians hate Russians as much as Bosnians hate Serbians, so it may be that no matter what our policy, events would have played out as they have. In that case, the stingers and other weapons we provided may have inadvertently increased the carnage by promoting the Russians to level whole cities, I meant to say provoking the Russians, to level whole cities versus achieving the quick decapitation goals of the of the Zelensky government Putin seems to have had at the outset. It's a tough situation with no good solutions, only trade-offs. Bottom line, I think we took a highly calibrated, nuanced, but sort of half-assed position. I prefer clear, unambiguous policies. However, I give Biden credit for acting in good faith, and I wish him and Zelensky well. I wish he had not abandoned Afghanistan because I think he signaled weakness to the bully Putin. It is also debatable whether it was wise to expand NATO as far eastward as has been done over numerous bipartisan administrations. While a noble goal, it encouraged Ukraine to seek membership, which was inevitably provocative in respect to Russia. The farther east NATO extends its perimeter, the farther over its skis it gets in terms of actual willingness to risk war with Russia to defend its membership. So that's my thought for the day in Ukraine, and we'll see what happens. I mean, Joe may have done the wise thing here, the the right thing, or it may turn out that he's done more harm than good. Uh, Many things in history are tough to evaluate until after the fact, sometimes years later. But I I do think he acted in good faith. I think he tried to do the right thing in a very complex and risky and fraught situation. So I'm not beating up on Joe here. I'm just expressing my doubts that taking the middle road here was right. If in the end Ukraine succumbs, the price they'll have paid 
will be a lot higher than if perhaps we had just let nature take its course. I'm another another perspective on that. I put a I put something out on Facebook. It's like a map of European borders over the last millennia. And these countries pop in and out of existence all the time. It's amazing. And it doesn't seem that way to us, but it's kind of like uh, evolution or something, you know, the glacial pace of it. Although glaciers have picked up, glaciers have picked up speed lately. Um, but over a longer time span, the, the flexibility, the dynamism of these borders is amazing. So sometimes there's been a Ukraine, sometimes there hasn't. Sometimes there's been a Poland, so other times there hasn't. Sometimes there's been a Germany, other times there hasn't. So, you know, getting involved with these European border uh, disputes, as Washington said, is probably something that we best avoid in general. But in the event, we have not. So anyway, that's it. Um thought I'd pop on and share that, and I hope you uh, found it talking worth listening to. Live long and prosper. Hello, 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 as the Three Stooges used to say. Well, today is a Nugent News uh, event without a great uh, portfolio, to be honest with you. Um... But the, the reason I hopped on is I had to share this, and I know my audience can handle this kind of humor. You know, Will Smith and the slap and Chris Rock and all that uh, is something that, honestly, I could care less about. You know, I mean, we have bigger problems in the world. And, you know, was, uh, there's no racial overtones to it, which is good. So... uh <clears throat> But it just occurred to me that if this Jada Smith, Pinkett Smith, or, you know, I never really heard of her before this, uh, if only she had worn a wig, you know? <laughs> but, now you can't, you know, you can't share humor like that uh, anywhere these days. So, I just thought I would share it here, let you know I'm alive and well and uh, living in Lincoln Park still. The uh, <clears throat> the paucity of uh, podcasts, to use a little bit of alliteration, is, is a result of really a couple things. One is that I've been busy <clears throat> working <clears throat> for a living, and the other is there hasn't been that much that's really caught my attention. I, I'm writing a column uh, for an outfit called the Chicago Contrarian. So if you go out and Google that, you can try to guess which one is me. Uh, I, I don't know if the guy has actually published it. This is kind of a shoestring operation, I believe. But let's see, as long as I decided to hop on here. Let's see what's in the old uh, Nugent News inbox. I have been clipping some things, of course, as I always do. <laughs> so let's see what's notable. You know, I on the Chicago front, I I was thinking somehow that 
the city had quieted down. And unfortunately, I saw some statistics that show that that's not the case. And then I saw a story today. We had another uh, break in one of the Michigan Avenue stores. And, you know, I think I've mentioned this before. Working uh, downtown two days a week, uh, it's it's a sad story uh, that people are, you know, <clears throat> the stores are just so, there's more vacant stores than there are full stores, occupied stores, I guess, open stores. So, uh, now here's the thing. I may have covered this in the podcast before, so excuse me, because this goes back to December. A dramatic uptick in homicides, 60% increase in shootings and homicides uh, as of the end of the year. It's a safety gap, and one of the things I'm doing for this new job is promoting a conference, and uh, we're holding the conference in three cities. By the way, this is a coding and revenue cycle uh, conference put on by a company called Kieran Zupko and Associates. So I know one of our listeners is uh, in that healthcare space, so if there's anything you can do to <laughs> share that with the folks at your alma mater hospital or anybody else you know. Um, in fact, I will invite you to follow our, our exciting LinkedIn company page. Oh, other other news. Uh, we're about to launch our website uh, for terrific writing. <clears throat> so watch for that. And we signed up a couple of writers. So it's going to be like a stable of writers, like the Algonquin Roundtable, only for business to business. And both of them happen to be Marquette grads. So anyway, yeah, I did cover this. So I saved this for the uh, for the Chicago Contrarian, <clears throat> but I did talk about it way back when. Let's see if we got anything else going on here. Uh, the Ukraine situation is fascinating to me. Um, this, you know, Russia has a long history of failed aggressions, uh, going back to the Crimean War. They didn't do well in that, and and this is not the Crimean War, like. This century, this is the one in the 19th century, the Charge of the Light Brigade, Crimean War. They didn't do well in that. And then they didn't do well in 1905 when they attacked uh, the the Japanese. And they had to sail their fleet from the western side of... Russia, which is huge if you look at a map. I mean, it's most of Eurasia, really. So they had to sail around the world, and it took them I don't know how long. Back then, you know, these were ships weren't that fast. They were coal-burning steamships. And then they got to Japan, and Japan just annihilated their whole fleet. Because Russia's not really a sea power. They were, for a while, there when the Cold War was hot, or was 
I don't know what the right word is, when the Cold War was intense. So that was bad. And then that, uh, you know, they they went to war, and it's hard to say whether that was an offensive or defensive war, but World War One, obviously, you know, after 1905 and then 1914 to 17, that was the end of the of the Romanovs, uh, the fall of the Tsar and the rise of the communist regime. But the pattern continues in uh, World War Two. You know, the, the the big thing that kicked that off was Hitler made a non-aggression pact with Stalin. And while Hitler was attacking Poland and then pivoting to the West, Russia took half of Poland, first of all. And then second of all, they attacked Finland. <clears throat> well, they didn't do too well in Finland. And Hitler saw that and said, hey, these guys aren't so tough. So that emboldened him to attack the Russians in, I believe it was, that was 1941, I know that. That non-aggression pact did not last long. I think maybe it was June of 41, and, uh, you know, that didn't turn out well. So the Russians have always done better in defense you know, if you go back to Napoleon, Napoleon made it to Moscow. I just saw, in fact, War and Peace, the Russian version, which is like nine hours. It's in subtitles. But, you know, we'll be tied those who invade Russia because they've got so much territory to retreat, you know, scorched earth. Napoleon takes Moscow, he, he can't feed his troops, he has to retreat, and the Russians followed him all the way back to Paris. <laughs> so, and then, of course, Hitler repeated that, and they followed him all the way back to Berlin. But the, the, the parallel to Ukraine is, you know, the Russians are not terribly successful when they go on a, on a war of aggression with a contested enemy. And the Ukraine has surprised everybody. I mean, I thought that was just going to be another Kabul where it's 48 hours and Zelensky's hanging, you know, his head's on a pike. Not the case. So, <clears throat> that's been very surprising to me. Now, the trouble, of course, is that the Democrats... You know, I couldn't figure out what Joe was doing when he was doing, like, the play-by-play -play announcements every day, talking about what Russia's going to do, when it was not clear that we could do a damn thing about it. Well, um, he did rally domestic support from the Democrats, and to some extent it's bipartisan, I think to a great extent. He uh, energized NATO, the Europeans. I mean, even Switzerland has taken a position on this. You know, which they never do. I mean, they didn't take a position on the Nazis. So uh, that's remarkable. And uh, <clears throat> we have been able to funnel them. Somebody's been able to funnel them a lot of weapons. So, you know, that's why they're able to shoot down all these Russian jets. And the Russians turn out, again, like Finland in World War Two, to be, you know, not quite as fearsome as one might have thought. So, 
the tell was they had to hire mercenaries, and now they're pulling back from Kiev, it looks like. And you never know whether it's a feint or not. But, uh, but the Democrats find themselves in the midst of contradictions. Jen Psaki, by the way, is quitting the press secretary. You know, I think she pretty much walked out of there undefeated, but uh, she's going to MSNBC to cash in. Press secretaries usually don't last that long. You know, it's a tough job. But, um, you know, the, the conundrum or the paradox or what have you is that on one hand, you know, Joe sanctions Russia, takes 3 billion barrels a day, or 3 million barrels a day, I should say, of oil off the market. And then he taps the strategic petroleum reserve. But now he's in a position of criticizing oil companies for not drilling when, in fact, due to the climate change imperative, the Green New Deal, they have not been granting permits for drilling. You know, Trump was all drill, baby, drill, and we were energy independent at one point, and now that's changed. And that drove the price of the oil company stocks and fossil fuel stocks down. You know, Jim Cramer was walking around saying they were uninvestable, and they've been the best performing stock this year. So the the conflict between, you know, saving Ukraine and saving the planet is one of the huge logical contradictions of democratic politics. And there are others, you know. They they talk about the economy, they talk about jobs, um, and yet at the same time, they're talking about, you know, improving the safety net, and that tends to bring unemployment down. Uh, there's just any number of internal contradictions and illogic in their position. I was in a little debate on Facebook today, and uh, one of my adversaries, he's going to be going to the... I've never been to a Carmel reunion, but I'm going to the 50th anniversary, unless I chicken out. And uh, maybe my, my adversary will be there, but we go back and forth pretty hard at it on Facebook for no apparent reason. But he's a proselytizing Bernie Sanders liberal. And so he puts something out there about, you know, it happens all the time. It's like insurance fraud perpetrated by, in this case, it was workman's comp providers. Well, it takes two to tango on that, you know, generally. But in this case, there were no patients indicted. And uh, I said, look, you know, third-party payment just opens you up to that kind of fraud because, if it's other people's money, it's dumb money. You know, they do try to audit it now. That's one of the things this Karen Zupko job is. Is You know, we tell people how to code right so they don't get investigated by the Office of Inspector General of the Department of Health and Human Services. And that is a no fun thing. Some docs go to jail. But <clears throat> um, a lot of stuff passes through. They don't have the time. You know, they pushed all this paper through. And then... They catch somebody doing something fraudulent, and it's not just healthcare. Anything the government buys, people game, and they take advantage of. The less that's 
bought by the government with other people's money, that would be you, the taxpayer, the less fraud there's going to be. And if somebody does get defrauded, it's their own fault. It's not a collective levy against the taxpayers. Is there going to be fraud in a private transaction? Of course. But, you know, it's survival of the smartest and the fittest and the savviest. And that's the marketplace. And eventually people get a bad reputation if they're ripoff artists. And that's how the market corrects. Those who don't provide value go out of business eventually. So so I make that comment. And he's like, and then later on, he's bemoaning. Uh, there's an old story about Clarence Thomas. He has to fill out a disclosure, and you know his wife is now caught up in this whole insurrection thing, which I think is kind of you know. If, if I were him, I wouldn't want her running around being as political as she is. But there's no law that says she can't be. So it's the appearances are you know she's not exactly Caesar's wife. Let's put it that way. But he's not exactly Caesar. So, uh, years ago, Clarence or his clerk or whoever fills out the forms for Clarence put down that his wife didn't make any money. Well, indeed, she was working for the Heritage Foundation or getting, you know, grants or whatever. So that was a mistake. But I read an article about it from the LA Times way back then, and it said there's nothing illegal about it. If you do that, then... You just have to fix the form and, you know, maybe you get a civil penalty of some sort. But it's not, like, criminal, you know. So, uh, anyway, this has popped up as a meme now about how Clarence Thomas lied on these forms. And these liberals are going back and forth about what's to be done. And and my, my sparring partner says, well, as long as, you know, there are lobbyists and big corporations that, you know, get the government to hand out corporate welfare, then there's no hope. And I'm like, well, you know, if you had a smaller government, you wouldn't have these problems, right? The bigger the federal budget, the more incentive there is to go get some boodle because it's dumb money. And yet, the progressive position is that we should put more money in the hands of this gullible government and that will just make things worse will it not it's not just the you know the small fries that bamboozle the government the smart less than ethical people are going to go wherever the money is. If it's in the private sector, they're going to, you know, take advantage of individuals and, you know, natural selection applies. If it's the government, they're going to, they're going to lobby and cajole and boodle. And everybody knows that. So uh, why put money into the hands? It, it's as if the progressive thinks that it's God who runs the federal government. And God will do the right thing and never make a mistake and never take, get taken advantage of. Well, that's not true. <clears throat> you know, you've got government service payrollers who really don't care what happens to the money or have a misguided notion of what should be done with it. It just distorts the private sector, the, the real economy. So 
we struggle to make that point, and, you know, with this particular individual, there's no hope of ever <laughs> breaking through on that. So, I mean, the biggest problem with the government is its size. You know, it, it, the biggest problem, one thing Ukraine has done is kind of restore my faith in democracy, because democracies rarely do go out in a war of aggression, you know. Sometimes there's a Vietnam or an Iraq or... You know, I I didn't personally think Afghanistan. I thought that was an unavoidable thing, but uh, not at that scale. But you know, democracies make mistakes, but usually the mistakes they made they make are well intentioned, shall we say, and at least begin with popular support. With Putin, I don't know that the Russian people, other than propaganda believers, were in favor of this, but one person has so much power, Putin, that if he says it should be done, it shall be done. And clearly it was a mistake, I think. In the end, I think he's going to come out worse for the wear by far and the big loser in this whole thing. But the, the same applies really to the... Leviathan, the gargantuan of a federal government, even in a democracy, because the bureaucrats really run it. The elected officials don't necessarily. The more power it has, which means money, which means taxes, the the more dangerous it becomes if it makes a mistake. And many of us saw that back in the 60s when it decided with the best of intentions to do things that really did far more harm than good. Uh, the FHA mortgage programs, the, the you know the breakdown of the of uh, restrictive covenants, frankly, uh, in the forties, the uh, AFDC aid to families with dependent children that incentivized breakup of the family unit. All these things made things worse. There were no winners in these things. You know, the people who inherited South Shore ended up losing, and the people who lost it ended up losing. So who benefited from that? I don't see any winners. All of these are because you have an incredible uh, increase in the power of the federal government, and people who are often wrong but never in doubt... <laughs> like LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson. So the principle applies. You know, when you get to a monopsony where there's one purchaser, if it makes a decision badly, everybody suffers. On the other hand, if you have 330 million purchasers, if one person makes a mistake, one person suffers, or maybe that person's dependents. So... Economic democracy and political democracy are two sides of the same coin, which is the people get to make choices. Some of those choices have to be collective. You can't have national security by, you know, individual people. You can't have interstate highways without, and of course those do some damage too, but there, there's certain things that are clearly in the public domain, and there's everything else that really shouldn't be. And that's the spirit of the Bill of Rights, right? Any rights that are not specifically uh, allocated to the government are vested in the people. 
The idea was not to have a government uh, of the people, by the people, for the people that was the people, that controlled the people. The idea was to have a government that did what it had to do and that we couldn't do as individuals and leave the rest up to you and I and everybody else. That has been turned on its head, and that began in the Great Depression. And there's been, I mean, you know, there's been some benefits to it, obviously. People live longer now, for better or for worse. I mean, having spent 67 years here, I think it's enough. <laughs> I mean, I'm watching Star Trek right now, and I've probably watched this show 100 times at least, but I still like it. Better than anything else that's been done, you know, certainly, you know, I never watch any kind of a network show. So, you know, the times kind of pass you by, and so the present has less and less appeal as you have more and more of a past, it seems to me. Because things change for better or worse, I think they're for worse, and you just don't like it compared to the way it was when you grew up. And I think every generation probably experiences that. But we've seen so much change in our lives that, um, you know, the Catholic Church has turned into sort of a shadow of what it once was. The city of Chicago has been turned on its head. I put a Twitter account out for my, uh, my pen name for Chicago Contrarian, and I was too lazy to go find a picture. So I put a picture of Mayor Daly upside down because I'm sure that was my, you know, it's like the world of Dick Daly turned upside down uh, was my motif. And uh, if I had one of him spinning in his grave, I would have done that, you know. Because it's not the Chicago we grew up in. And, of course, that was the case for, I guess, our parents, too. But I know my parents were born in the teens and 20s of the 20th century, and the church was strong. And throughout most of their lives, the church was strong. It was only in the 80s and the 90s when it started to really decline. So... You know, there was more continuity in their lives, I guess you'd have to say. Yeah, maybe not. I don't know. A lot of things did change. It's the old saying, time makes ancient good uncouth that I learned from my boss. And, you know, time kind of passes you by. I don't stay current. I mean, I don't watch the Oscars because I don't know any of the movies. Or even the actors. I go... To the extent they still have these uh, celebrity magazines in the stores, and to the extent I ever go to the store, I see the cover, and it used to be like Liz and Dick, or, you know, I forget who used to be on the cover of the Inquirer or whatever, but you knew who they were. I don't even know who they are. They're like Biff left Jody, and I'm like, I don't even know. Is that two guys? Whatever. So, you know, living in the moment, uh, he has its moments, I guess, but they become fewer and fewer as you get older and older, as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, you have to admit that Medicare certainly extended lives. And, you know, 
obviously the public health uh, steps that were taken over the years, and this goes back to even the 1920s, you know, we've really conquered a lot of the infectious disease problems. Public sanitation, you know, that's definitely something that needs to be done on a government level. You know, you used to walk around the streets and, you know, particularly when horses were, when we really had horsepower, not uh, combustion or electric horsepower. I mean, it, the, the city was a, a breeding ground for cholera and every other kind of disease. And people didn't live much past 50, you know, generally, which is all you really need to do if you're going to look at it from a, you know, reproductive standpoint. So progress has been made there. I think we could all agree, you know, not so much anymore because of all this anti-vax thing, but, you know, reasonable, rational people would agree that there's a role for government. Uh, but I look at the government as more doing things that, the private sector can't do. And it, it just isn't practical. Like national defense, like transportation, roads, like public health. And the rest stays in the private sector. <clears throat> so anyway, I think I'll cut it there. I think I'm starting to ramble a little bit, but that's because I don't have an agenda here, you know. This is all off the top of my fevered brain. So anyway, um, that's it for today. That's a half an hour of your life you'll never get back. But I know, you know, nobody complained about the absence of the podcast. So I was thinking, well, if nobody complains, I'll just maybe, you know, call it a podcast career. But... The spirit moved. So whenever the spirit moves, I will move, and I will record, and uh, we'll go from there. So I hope you enjoyed it, at least as much as I did, which is a reasonably low bar. So live long, prosper, happy uh, April Fool's Day, and uh, we'll hopefully uh, be on the air soon again. Bye-bye.